almost done with Genesis, with the life of Joseph. Next week, Lord willing, if I'm still alive, will be our last servant, sermon on Joseph. It's been a long time. When we started, Heather and Joe weren't married. Now they're married and they're veterans now. It's amazing, right? So we've been here for a while. So we are, we are coming to the conclusion. We are coming at the end of Joseph's life. But today we're going to talk about the aftermath of Jacob's death. As you remember, Jacob was Joseph's father. Jacob's name is, is God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And Israel slash Jacob was Joseph's father. And Joseph's father, as we talked about last week, has passed away. I'm sorry, Jacob has passed away last week. During our sermon that we covered, he passed away. So I remember one of the last things that Jacob told Joseph was he said, bury me in the cave of the Hittites. Right? So after Jacob died, he was embalmed. You know what embalming means? I think, like, made to look alive. I think, you know, those, like, you know, those open casket funerals that you're being embalmed that way. Joseph, Jacob was embalmed for, like, and, and, and all of Egypt wept for 70 days. And, you know, there was a 70-day mourning period for Jacob. And after the mourning period, Joseph took his father's body into the, into the land that Jacob told Joseph to, to, to bury, to, to, for him to bury him. What is very interesting about this land that Jacob was to be buried is that it is the same plot of land where Abraham and Sarah were buried, as well as Isaac, Jacob's father, and Jacob's mother, Rebekah, were buried. So he's being buried at the same place that Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah are buried. And it is, interestingly, it is also the same place where Leah, his wife, was buried. So Jacob was going to be buried in the same place that his wife Leah was to be buried. Interesting, no? Why is it interesting? Because Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel, but he didn't love Leah. He only loved Rachel, right? Remember this? You know, he married Le Le Leah because his old uncle tricked him into marrying Leah, right? But he really only loved Rachel. And, ja and Jacob made it clear as day, every day, to Leah that he didn't really want her, right? What a jerk. Leah lived, she tried so hard, you know, understandably for Jacob to love her. I think one of her kids' name, kids' name is, like, now that I have a son, my husband will love me. That's one of the kids' names. That's so sad. One of the kids' name is, now that I have a son, my, my husband will love me. That didn't happen. Jacob still loved Rachel, Leah was rejected 
all the days of our life by Jacob. But it is interesting. Jacob is to be buried next to Leah and not Rachel. What is the significance of this? Significance of this is this. People who are buried in that land, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're the ancestors of the nation of Israel. And through these people, Jesus Christ is born. Jesus Christ was born through the line of Leah and not Rachel. The great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus Christ was not Rachel, but was Leah, the rejected one. Doesn't that warm your heart? What is the significance of Leah being the grandmother of Jesus Christ rather than Rachel? The significance of Leah being Jesus' grandmother is this. Jesus has come to save the rejected, the unwanted, the insignificant, the weak. Jesus said, I have come to save the lost sheep. I have come to heal the sick, he says. I have come for sinners, he says. All of it, all these people are weak, rejected, insignificant, unacceptable people. Jesus is the savior of the unacceptable, of the rejected, of the enslaved, of the sick. What does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be the God savior of the unacceptable, the rejected, the enslaved, and the sick? Oftentimes, people misunderstand what I just said. Oftentimes, people think, oh, if Jesus coming to save the unacceptable and the weak, it means Jesus must have come to save those who are socially, economically poor. If you look at the Korean community in America, and the, and, 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 the, and, the, and, the, and the third world countries, poor third world countries where Christianity is rapidly growing, the type of Christianity that's growing in those countries and in early US current immigrants is based on the prosperity gospel. Because the current immigrants, when they first came here, they didn't have anything. They came here with $6, $15, that's what they all say. I came here with $100, and I came with nothing, and I made a life for you so that you guys can be doctors. Anyone doctors here? How dare you? Your parents came to America with $10, you're not doctors? Right, shame on you. Oh, Dr. J is a doctor. God bless Dr. J, right? But they came here impoverished, and they're poor, and they're not respected society like y'all are respected societally. Right? And the only hope that they can give is to believe in the God who seemed to promise prosperity, take, taking them out of their impoverished state. So when they hear Jesus is the God of the poor, they think Jesus wants me, wants me to be rich in this world. That's why prosperity gospel is so pre prevalent in early Korean church in America, as well as the third world countries right now. 
this, not only that, not only prosperity gospel, but right now, what you call liberation theology is spreading across. Woke theology, also known as liberation theology, is spreading across the world, or spreading across America mostly. And liberation slash woke theology is this. When you say Jesus has come to save the unaccepted, the weak, the enslaved in, in, in society, he means he has come to, you know, he has come to save the marginalized, you know, the, the, the fringe group of society, right? The, the political, you know, the, the, you know, the politically insignificant, the marginalized, the disenfranchised people, right? The minorities. Jesus has come to give them voice in this society. That's what they say. While certainly Jesus cares about the weak and the poor in society, when Jesus says, I am come to save the weak and the unaccepted and the, and the poor, what he means is not so much poor in the society economic point of view, but spiritual point of view. He has come to save those who are spiritually sick, those who are spiritually enslaved, and as a result, those who are unacceptable by God's standard. That's what he's saying. When he's saying, I have come to save the unacceptable, he's saying, I have come to save those whom God finds unacceptable. That's what he come to do. Like I said in the prayer confession, this is what sin is. Like I said, in the Garden of Eden, men, there was no boundary between our internal self and our external self. We were living in a world of objective beauty and reality and where God, and when, where God was clearly seen and visible. We were, we were living in a wide, expansive, we were part of God's creation. And with all of God's creation, we recognize the beauty of creation and the beauty of God's law and the beauty of the way God made the structure of this world. We live in the full awareness of the beauty and the majesty and the sovereignty of God. Right? But when Adam and Eve sinned, what is the first thing that happened when they sinned? It says they were aware of their nakedness and they were ashamed. What this means is before sin, they, they had a clear-eyed view of who God was and his objective reality. But after sin, all their focus and attention came internal. And they were imprisoned in the self-psyche, psyche in the prison of their self-psyche. Rather than seeing everything the way God has created, they're trapped. And they're trapped in their internal prison, internal boxes, where the only thing that governs their mind, governs their reality, is how they feel, their limited perceptions, half-truths and lies, out-of-control desires. 
They're governed, they're, they're imprisoned by their internal box full of half-truths, unhealthy obsessions, uncontrollable desires. And people live this way. We're supposed to live like, wow, the world, the beauty of the world, praise God. That's how we're created. But now we're created with this. I don't know who I am. I feel things. I don't know what, where they're from. We're trapped in our internal boxes. That's what sin does. Look, I'll give you an example. A silly example. So I, ha I drive a Honda Accord. God bless the Honda Accord. I'm All of you drive a better car than me. God bless you, right? So I was thinking, I was thinking Honda Accord is what? I bought it in 2017, so it's like five years old. And my son's graduating from college like in a couple of years, or in a year and a half. And I said, oh, I'm going to give my car to my son, right? So in a year, I'm going to give my car to my son. Or next summer, when he gets an internship, Lord willing, if he gets an internship, I'm going to give the car to my son. And let me drive, let me, I got to buy, I guess I got to buy a new car for myself, right? I have no choice because I'm such a good dad. So let's go car shopping, shall we? Right? And so you start to car shop, you start to like dream about what car I should buy. Right? Because, you know, I deserve it. Right? I, I work hard, right? Jenna knows how hard I work, right? You all know how, how hard I work, right? I deserve it, right? So what, can, what toy can I buy for myself? And I was looking at certain cars. And I'm not going to name those cars that I looked at because some of you drive those cars that I was looking at. Right? So I don't want to shame you. Right? I go, yeah. Yeah, that looks good. And my mind, for two days last week, I was just inundated with that desire to buying a new car. I want a new car. I want a new car. I want a new car. YouTube channel, most reliable car. Da, 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 da. I was trapped in my desire. That's all I could think about. Isn't it weird? And by God's grace, God led me to this YouTuber named Scotty Kilmer. God bless him. And Scotty Kilmer is a mechanic for 50 years. And he says, in my experience in the last 50 years, the pieces of the most reliable car, in my opinion, the most unreliable car, in my opinion, and he says, and he mentions the brands of cars that I wanted to buy. I go, what? Yeah, he says, according to my 50 years, these cars that I wanted, was thinking about buying, he says, these are expensive. And they will break apart in, after 50,000 miles because all their inner tubing is made out of plastic. And after 60,000 miles, those inner plastic starts to melt. And you're going to start leaking. You're gonna, your car's going to start leaking all over the place. And it's going to cost you so much money to replace all those constant leaks. Not only that, all these modern fancy cars are made out of 100 plus computer applications. When they start to break down, you don't know what's wrong with them. They're very expensive to fix. And I go, what? And he said, in my opinion, he says, the most reliable cars are Honda, Toyota, and Lexus. When I heard that, I woke up. And I looked at my Honda, and I fell in love again. 
I, I will have a renewal, like a car marriage renewal ceremony because I love my Honda. You know what I mean? It's silly. But that's what sin does. It makes you obsessed over things that are not really important. It traps you in your inner box of desire. And if God doesn't bring you out of it, you will always dwell within the inner box of desire. Dwelling in your inner boxes, it has casualties, man. My example is silly. God saved me from, the, from wasting my money on certain types of cars, right? Thanks to the grace called Scotty Kilmer. My example is silly. But all the murders of the, in the world, all the genocide in the world, all the wife-husband conflict in the world, it's because people are stuck in their little boxes of their limited perceptions. I'll give you an example. Joseph's brothers are the best example, right? Joseph's brothers, ever since Joseph was a kid, his father preferred Joseph. That was Jacob's problem. He always, had, he always played favorites. And he made sure that everyone knew he loved Joseph more than anyone else. And when his brothers, ever since Joseph was a kid, when they looked at Joseph, they put Joseph in their own little box, boxes and said, Joseph is a jerk. Joseph thinks he's better than everyone. Joseph, Joseph is an arrogant, spoiled child. Therefore, I hate him. They put Joseph and they put him in their box. They couldn't see any other aspect of Joseph. All they saw about Joseph is, is, is their bias. Joseph is a jerk. Joseph is a jerk. That's how they thought about him all of Joseph's life for 17 years. And finally, when they had the chance, they wanted to kill him. The box. Look. Let's be real here, right? For those of you, who, when you fight, right? And I hope you don't fight, but when you fight with your spouses, aren't you fighting a version of the spouse that you have in your head? You make a judgment about what, that's, what your spouse is. And everything that your spouse does is just a reinforcement of your bias against your spouse. There is no complete 360-degree evaluation of who your spouse is. All you see is your spouse according to your little box. And when that, when your spouse, you know, just constant, when you're judging your spouse constantly according to the standards of your little box, when your spouse constantly does things that are unacceptable to you, just like Joseph's brothers, or not just like Joseph's brothers, like I hope you don't sell your spouse as slavery, but your words become violent. Doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? You're stuck in your box. 
That's the same way with Paul, the Apostle Paul. He had a religious ideology before meeting Christ. He had a certain religious ideology, and he viewed Christians in, in the light of his religious ideologies, and, and he put Christianity in the box of his religi religious ideology, and when Christians were going against his box, he had no problem persecuting them. He had no problem persecuting them because they were going against the standards of his box. Everyone is trapped in their boxes. That's what it means for us to be imprisoned by our sins. That's what it means for us to be slaves to our sins. We're trapped in our inner boxes. But Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ does, he takes us out of our boxes. And he makes us see things clearly. He does do this. I had an issue with my wife. We always have issues with my wife. No, this isn't because she ate half my soup, okay? I'm over it. Right? I'm over that. I've forgiven her because I'm an evolved man. Right? Well, there are issues that we have, as, as, you know, as men and women do. And we, we had an argument like last week, which was in Korea. We had an argument in different time zones. That was fantastic. Right? It wasn't fantastic. It was horrible. But then she came to, back to America. Right? And then I was like, praying for her the other day. And God, when I was arguing with her, I think I put her in a box, right? But as I was walking and praying for her, God gave me an insight to her that I never saw. I've been married for 22 years. I've known her for 25. I've lived with her for 22 years. God gave me a new insight about her. And that insight realized, like, made me realize something new about her. And that understanding about her allowed me to love her more deeply than I did before. He took me out of that box and gave me new vision. That's what Jesus does. That's what he means when he rescues us out of our boxes. Look, how he, our sins, what we, what we do when we're trapped in our, in our boxes is really, really bad and awful. It's really real and awful. But when he takes us out of our boxes, the life that he gives is wonderful. That's the Christian life. When we are in our boxes, the things that we do, the sins that we commit, and the destruction that we made make us unacceptable to God. But for these, these things that we do make us unacceptable to God, but despite the fact that we are unacceptable, God died, Jesus Christ died for us. And because Jesus Christ died for us, we are, made, we, are, we are new creations. And as new creations, God gives this new life to us constantly. 
So as Christians, we are called to always be mindful of the fact that we were once trapped in our inner boxes, but Christ forgave us and gave us new life. Once again, we are called to be always be mindful that Christ saved us from our inner boxes. He forgave the destruction that we made when we are in our boxes. He forgave us. Christ died for us. And, when he, and because he died for us, he redeems us. He gives us new life. That's the mindset that we need to live every day of our lives, right? But the problem is, Christians do not have this mindset when they live their lives. Christians, when they sin, they are aware of their sin and how horrible it is. I don't have to tell you how awful your sin is because you, when you sin, you know how awful your sins are, right? Unless you're a sociopath, psychopath, you know how awful your sin is. If you don't know how awful your sin is, let me t- uh, come talk to me. I'll tell you exactly what, how horrible your sin is, right? Most of you don't have a problem knowing how horrible your sin is. But the problem comes is that you don't know how forgiven you are. And you don't know the life that God is going to give to those people whom he has saved. You know how you know your sins, but you don't know the forgiveness and the life that he gives. I was, one of my best friends, she has a son, a very smart son. God is opening his eyes to things. And God has made him see that he's addicted to video games, and he feels horrible that he feels addicted to video games. For those of you addicted to video games, shame on you, right? So, 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 so the, a 13-year-old knows how horrible video game addiction is. But every time he plays it, he feels so horrible. I can't believe I'm playing video games again. I can't play, believe I'm playing video games again. He doesn't know that Christ forgave him and will continually give him new life. Knowing that you are a sinner is just half the truth. The full truth is you are a saved person and those whom God has saved, the Holy Spirit will continually to give his life to you. That's the complete understanding that you're called to live your Christian life. El comprende, por favor? It is not enough for you to know that you're a sinner. Everyone and their mothers and your wife, especially your wife, will know that you're a sinner. But you need to know that you're forgiven. And those whom God has saved, he continues to give his life to you. That's the problem with Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers, this is what's happening. Their father died. And for those of you who don't know, Joseph's brothers did horrible things to Joseph. When Joseph was 17, because his brothers were so jealous of him, they wanted to kill him. So when Joseph was visiting them on, when they were working in the, in the fields, the brothers beat Joseph up to the inch of his life. 
and they threw him, his body, in an empty well. They beat him up and they threw him to the well so that he will starve and dehydrate to death. That's what they did, his brothers. But then they, they saw a, a, like slave owners coming down the road and they thought, hey, why don't we make money off this guy? So they took him out of the well and sold him into slavery and Joseph became, went down to Egypt as a slave and remained there for 30 years, like 20 some odd years. Joseph's brothers did something that is very, very evil and they knew they did something that was really, really evil, but Joseph forgave them. But when their, when their father has died, they thought, oh, our father is dead, is, has died. Now there's no one to stop Joseph from, you know, going Vin Diesel on us and pouring his wrath on us. Oh, no. Joseph forgave them, but the brothers never really trusted in Joseph's forgiveness. They thought that his forgiveness was contingent upon their father being alive. They were never really convinced that Joseph forgave them. They thought Joseph's forgiveness was conditional. So many Christians think this way. They know theoretically they're forgiven by God. But in reality, they don't know they're really forgiven. That is why it is easier for people to be depressed over their sins rather than accepting the fact that God has forgiven them in Christ. Joseph's brothers didn't trust Joseph's forgiveness. So what do they do? They lie to Joseph. They go to Joseph and say, hey, Joseph, yeah, before our fathers died, this is what he said. Our father told us to tell you, right? Our father told us to tell you to forgive us, right? Joseph, our father knew that what we did was evil. So our father was telling you, told us to tell you to forgive us. They lied to him. Because Jacob never said that. Not only that, they said, we are your slaves. Meaning, we did evil in your sight. We did what is so horrible to you. We know we did what we did was so horrible to you. Therefore, rather than trusting in your forgiveness, let us sell ourselves as your slaves. Let us earn, let us, let us somehow earn your forgiveness by making ourselves your slaves. That's what people do. People grow up thinking and being taught that Jesus Christ has forgiven them. But unfortunately, they are that not, many Christians still don't believe that they're forgiven. And when they finally discover that they're of their sins, they want to do things 
to make themselves better rather than trusting in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Look, there's nothing like marriage to reveal. By the way, I'm pro-marriage. God bless. I love being married, right? Being married and going out to dinner with my kids and paying my son's tuition and his, and his rent and his living expenses and his food is the privilege of my life, right? And hanging out with my daughter and my wife, it's, it's a great joy in my life. But you know and I know, once you get married, think about getting married as this. Now you have an audience of your sins. When you're single, you have no audience of your sins. No one's there to looking at you. There's no direct casualty to your sins. But when you're married, your spouse is in the front row with 3D glasses on, right? And they get to experience your sin in real-time ways. I, I told this guy to the Friday Night Small Group. You, you get a front row experience to your sins, right? When you discover how much hurt that your sin is causing your spouse, you feel horrible. If you don't feel horrible, there's something wrong with you. You feel horrible. But a lot of guys, or a lot of women, rather than trusting the fact that Christ forgave them, when they discover how horrible they are, they want to do things to make it better. It's weird. I'll change. As if them changing will make the sin any less painful. It's weird. I want to earn my salvation. I want to earn God's forgiveness by serving him, by doing things for him. I want to earn God's forgiveness rather than trusting in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. In marriages, this is what I see oftentimes. There is one who is always a sinner, and there's always the one who's always a victim of the other person's sins. It's not true. Both are sinners. But oftentimes, the dynamic of a lot of couples is there's a sinner, and there is, the, there is a sinner, and there's a party that's sinned against. And the party that is sinning feels horrible, and the party that is being sinned against is super judgmental and unforgiving. It's weird. They feel horrible about their sins. They can't forgive their other people's sins because it's always happening. But in both of their transactions, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that he forgave them, that's invisible. It's not there. God is not there. And therefore, when they sin against each other, they, it's just a constant source of pain. There's no forgiveness. And the, sin, the sinning party doesn't know what to do. Sad. Am I, am I painting a bleak picture of marriage? 
Get married. Josh, get married. Marriage is great, right? That's Joseph's brother's problem. They don't trust in Joseph's forgiveness. What did Joseph do? He tells them. He, he, this is, this, he tells them. What does he tell them? Verse 19. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? For as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is how Joseph comforts his brothers, and this is a secret of how you feel the full forgiveness of Jesus Christ in your life. When his brothers said, we are your slaves, this is what Joseph said. Joseph says, look, Am I God? Am I in the place of God? When he says in verse 19, am I in the place of God? He means God was there directing my, directing my footsteps every inch, every day of my life. When God says, when Joseph said, am I, do not fear for, for am I in the place of God? He says, am I God? What he means is, He's aware of the sovereignty of God in his life. Joseph knew it was by God's providence that he was born as Jacob's son. It was God's providence and direction that made, that allowed his brothers to beat him up and sold him as a slave. It was God's providence that made Joseph find favor in Potiphar's house. And Joseph was super successful in Potiphar's house for 10 years. That was God's providence. It was God's providence that Mrs. Potiphar lusted after him. And as a, and as a result of him, you know, not going again, going again not, going, not agreeing to Mrs. Potiphar's advances towards him, he landed in jail. That was God's providence too. It was God's providence that he found favor in, in the jail warden's eyes, and he was successful in prison. It was God's providence that the chief baker and the, and the cupbearer of the king landed in his, in, his, in, his, in his control. It was God's providence that he was able to interpret their dreams. He says everything in his life was God's providence. He was able to forgive his brothers because he interpreted his life through the lens of the sovereignty of God. Not only that, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What, Jacob, what Joseph is saying is this. Every step of my life God directed, but he directed my footsteps to accomplish his greater plan which is to save people's lives when the famine hit. What, jo what Joseph is doing here is he is contextualizing their brother, his brother's evil within the greater framework of God's sovereign plan. Do you understand? Joseph is not just seeing what the evil his brother did against him. 
if Joseph did not know God, if Joseph didn't see God, all he could see was how his brothers wronged him. And if the only thing that he could see was how his brothers wronged him, he will not be able to forgive. When you fight against your spouse, if the only thing that you see is how your spouse has wronged you, you will not be able to forgive your spouse, no matter how nice you are. Joseph was able to forgive his brothers because the evil that they did and what they did was horrible. But even the horrible things that they have done to him, he framed it within the greater narrative, the greater, uh, greater plan of God. And because he saw how God used his brother's evil to accomplish God's great purpose, he could understand why his brothers needed to do what they did. And when he, understood why he, why he, when he understood why his brother did what they did, he could forgive them. He framed his brother's evil within the larger context of God's great plan. The way you will forgive people when they sin against you is you need to frame their sin with the larger context of God's plan for you. God uses everything. Everything in your life, especially your sin and the sin, sin, and, and the sin, of, sin that other people do against you to accomplish his greater purpose. And what is God's greater purpose in your life? His great purpose in your life is for you to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, 28 verse, Romans chapter 8 verses 28 to 29, shoot it, John. He's a shot. What does it say? And we know that for those who love God and for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, what is his purpose? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. This is what Paul's main point is in this verse. Paul's main point is the reason why God predestined you and chose you to salvation, it is so that you will conform to the image of Jesus Christ. The purpose of your salvation, it is not so that you will go to heaven and be happy forever and float in the air. That's not what it is. But it is for you to bear the perfect image of Jesus Christ, the perfect human being. Listen to me carefully once again. God's great purpose for you, it is for you to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. When you die and when you are resurrected, at the, when Jesus returns, you will be like him. That's the goal of your salvation. For you to bear the image of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying here, God will work out all things so that God will accomplish this purpose. The purpose of your life. Is for you to bear the image of Jesus Christ. He will use your sins. He will use the sin of other people. He will use your failures. He will use your successes. He will use your pain. He will use your struggles. He will use everything so that you will bear the image of Jesus Christ. You married a lousy spouse. He allows you to marry a married, lousy spouse so that through that lousy spouse, you can bear the image of Jesus Christ. 
That's it. Jesus never promised you success. He never promised you, you know, a nice house. He never promised you any of it. He promised that if you belong to him, you will bear his image. Look, if you are a Christian, there is a pattern to your life. There is a pattern for everything. Did you know this? The reason science is successful is because there's patterns for everything. Right? There's a pattern. Science is possible because you can observe the patterns of the universe. Your cell phone is possible because there's a sound wave, predict pattern of sound waves and radio waves out in the atmosphere that makes your cell phone possible. There are patterns in reality and there's a pattern to the Christian life and this is a pattern to the Christian life you ready this is it this is the highlight of the sermon ready the pattern of Christian life is this you will sin you will and you will be sinned against you will that's a 100% guarantee you will sin and you will be sinned against it's a, matter of, it's a matter of when, not if. And the sin that you experience, you will feel horrible and hopeless. You will. That's a 100% guarantee. You will do things or other things may have been done for you that will make you feel horrible and hopeless and sometimes wanting to make you suicidal. It will happen to you. I guarantee it will happen to you. But if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit will instill the life of God in you. He will use the tools called his word and prayer and the church. He will use you to give you new insights, new revelations, so that you will see things that you have never saw before. And when you start seeing things that you never saw before, you will see God more clearly, and you will love God and other people more deeply. That's what happens. And that cycle will repeat. You will sin against, or other people sin against you. You'll feel horribly again, but God's going to intervene. You're going to see things clearly, and you're going to love God and love other people more. That's the pattern of your life for the remainder of your days here. It's not that you experience sin once, and you get over it once. That's not how it works. It's a continual pattern. That's a pattern until the day you die. That sounds depressing, but that's reality. You will experience the harshness of sin, but you will also experience the resurrected life continuously in an ongoing cycle until you die. That's how God brings about Christ-likeness in you. In my earlier days when I was fighting with my wife, I, fight, I talk about my wife a lot today. Like... <laughs> I would say something, and when I was nicer, I said, I'm sorry, right? And she says, you're always sorry. That's what she said. Oh. She thought, if I just say I'm sorry, then I feel sorry will make me change. That's not how it works. 
me making me myself realize what a sinner I am, that's not enough to change me. It's the revelation of God that's revealed in my sin that changes me. You shouldn't sin, right? I shouldn't sin. But if you do sin, don't waste your sin on just feeling guilty and shameful all the time. Take your sin and examine it and study it and pray over it and look at it and say, why did I sin? What is this about? What is this reveal, reveal about, my, about who I am? Study it. Use your sin so that you will have a close, better understanding of yourself and God. Do you understand? Your sin is not just, when sin is revealed, you shouldn't say, oh, if I sin, I feel so horrible. I want to know what to do. There are moments you should feel that way. But look at it. Examine it. And see what, is, what, what, what's, what your sins reveal about you and God and life. That's how you overcome sin. One of the, I was listening to a YouTube interview, and one of these, this pastor said he was addicted to pornography back in the day. And he overcame pornography by truly looking at what, he, what type of pornography he was, he was addicted to. He just didn't say, oh, I'm a sinner, I'm, I watch porn. He went beyond that. He says, why do I watch this type of porn? What does this say about me, he said. That's how he overcame it. That's the pattern of the Christian. When you see your sin and other people's sin within the larger context of God using all of it to make you conform to the image of Jesus Christ, then you can forgive other people's sins. If you're just focusing on how you have wronged or how other people have wronged you, you will never forgive their sins. That's the pattern of the Christian. The pattern of the unbeliever is you sin or people have sinned against you. You feel horrible. You don't know what to do about the horrible feelings that you have. So you either you know, get addicted to other things to make you forget. Or let this bitterness harbor inside you and destroy you. The tragedy of being an unbeliever is the sin will be a source of not a revelation, but a continual source of bitterness and pain. That's the tragedy of an unbeliever. Sin will never be used to make you closer to God. It will be used to make you more insane. What is the pattern of your life? What is the pattern when people sin against you or you sin? Do you see the sovereignty of God? No, once again, the, he's allowing those sins to you so that you will conform to the image of Jesus Christ. Do you understand? Always frame your life within the great framework of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.